to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have John Burnside here in the studio. Welcome, John. Uh, nice to be here. <laughs> Thanks for coming. <laughs> John, you're visiting from, from Scotland. You're here. Um, it's, let's see, it's February 10th. Um, it's 11th today, actually. Oh, it's the 11th. <laughs> <laughs> I am in a time warp. <laughs> Um, it's February 11th, uh, 2010, and, and so this is a taped program, and you're here in town to, to read at the, the Art Museum mm-hmm. uh, for the Zell Visiting Writers yeah. series. Yeah. Um, will you be reading poems? Are you Because you wear many hats, John Burnside. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I've agreed that I'll read poems today because um, I, I do wear many hats. I write poetry. I write fiction. Memoir. Uh, memoir. Uh, essays as well, in fact. Um, so uh, I, I do lots of different things. I kind of like. I'm kind of nostalgic for the old days when people weren't so specialist. Well, I think that's every like writers write. I think we should all be writing everything. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, why do you why do you think we why do you think it's we've become specialists? Do you think that's like a part of the MFA programs? Like not nice. I'm trying to <laughs> bite the hand that feeds me. No, you right? I don't think so. I think it's I think it's to do. It's even more than that. It's, it's I remember I wrote one novel and it begins with a scene which is essentially a crime scene. You know, it's um it's actually a rapist breaking into a house. To and, and the background to the novel was. Cambridge in the 1970s, this rapist was going around. Uh, what was the title of this novel, John? Uh, the Locust Room, it was called. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, the, because there was, it began with a scene from, you know, a scene of crime, that book was then even more specialized. It's fiction, yeah, but it was actually put in the crime section. So people who were interested in crime fiction picked the book out of the crime section and went off to read it, thinking they were going to get, you know, something like the classic crime. Yes, crime, uh, like a genre John Grisham book. or so, or yeah, something. you know, a genre, some or kind genre. of genre book, anyway. <laughs> and of course, they were disappointed because it wasn't that at all. And of course, literary fiction people didn't find it because it was in the. <laughs> uh, and um, there is that. There is the danger of that um, because it's driven by. It's often driven by marketing and by yes. that kind of presentation. People are, have to put a label on something and say it's. It belong. This is this kind of writer. Um, and he writes this kind of book, or she writes this kind of book. And um, if you do lots of different kinds of books, people find it harder to label you, of course, and therefore harder to market you, you the way the current system works. So to some people, I'm a poet, and some people, I'm a, I'm a novelist. And some one person actually said to me, oh, that's really strange. You know, I, I really like your fiction, but you know, there's a poet who's got the same name as you and writes poetry. And I said, well, <laughs> that's me as well. You know, I, I can do two things. Not, not particularly well, but <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like a woman. I can multitask. 
That's right. Right now, John is um, uh, patting his head and rubbing his belly, or vice versa, something. Before we go any further, John, because I can see we're, we we could just we could just chat here without. But let me um, read a short. Um, a short bio um, for you from the back of your memoir, A Lie About My Father, which is actually, this is one of the books uh, published here in the States, and we'll talk about more about that later, the state of getting the UK publishing and how that translates to the States. Um, but Grey Wolf Press put out this memoir in 2006 in the States, I think. I think so. But much earlier than in the UK, and it's A Lie About My Father. Um, all right, to the bio. Scottish-born John Burnside has published five works of fiction and nine collections of poetry, including The Asylum Dance, which won the 2000 Whitbread Poetry Award. He teaches at the University of St. Andrews in Fife. All right, so let's go about (laughs) mending that bio, because now I feel like you've written seven works of fiction and Mm. 13 collections of poetry. Is it 13? I've lost track. I lost count myself. Yeah, yeah why count? Right? <laughs> it's, about, it's around about that mark. You know, a dozen, a baker's dozen, whatever, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now two volumes of memoir. Yes. Because uh, the second memoir came out in January in the UK. Waking Up in Toy Town. Yeah. And so, and so, and and now will Grey Wolf put out Waking Up in actually, Toy Town? I don't know. Actually, we're still, we're all kind of still talking about I think what happened last year was uh, I'm published by Grey Wolf for the live, but my father's published by Grey Wolf, and my fiction's published published by Nantalee's Doubleday. Um, so there's a kind of you know I'm already with two different people, and there's kind of uh, there's conversations about that. There's also you know it was a big bad year for publishing like everybody else yes. last year. So uh, you know there's a whole bunch of questions in the air. I didn't want to go out and, and commit to uh, new projects. Um, in the UK even, um, last year anyway, because I wanted to consolidate what I had. I had a novel which I hadn't finished. I wanted to take time to finish it. I had a very busy year last year. Um, I teach full-time. And um, um, and that's at St. Andrews. At St. Andrews, yeah, and I'm director. I, I, I have been the director of the creative writing program there as well. So and now I have research leave and I've handed over my various duties at St. Andrews to other people, so I've got some time at least to concentrate on doing other things. So now I'm putting together a whole bunch of new... new I do these kind of... Soviet style five year plans, you know. Um, nice. Yeah. <laughs> tell, tell us about that. <laughs> well, my, my, my five year plan now is I know what I'm wanting to do over the next five years, and it's just a question of what order they've done in. Um, I'm finishing this novel, which is set in the Arctic Circle, set in a small island in, in the very north of Norway. And it's about a, a woman, a painter, and her daughter who live there. And um, and you spent a short time in Norway. Yeah, didn't well, I, spent, you as well? I spent several. I visited that part of Norway several times, and I spent one summer there with my my wife and my one year old son, oh. researching. He's now he's now ten years old. So it shows you how long this book has taken to get off the ground. Um, so that book's got to be finished, and um, it's it's close to finishing now. Uh, I have another book which I've got in mind, which is uh, history of a song. It's the story of the song um, I Put a Spell on You by Screaming Jay Hawkins. And it's about various stages in the lifetime of that song, if you like. Some really interesting people covered that song. Screaming Jay himself was a crazy character, somebody I'm very much very interested in. So there's a book about that song, a series of, I feel like, essays or studies about different people who covered it and different things. Do that you already have you already like for example written some of the essays and and, um, and are they already out in the I've world? Sketched for all that? No, nothing's oh, okay. out there yet. Um, okay. I've sketched out a lot of the stuff, you know, um, um, and it's there's kind of tangential 
kind of approaches to to each cover of the song. Like there's one about the MC5 in, since we're yeah, in Detroit. Detroit area, yeah. yeah. So there's one about you know the MC5 um, covered that song rather interestingly, and it, it gives me an excuse to talk about them and to talk about the, the the movement at that time and those kinds of things and from a kind of slightly different angle. So that that that's one of the things that's um, on you know kind of in the. In, on the on the on the drawing board, as it were, I'm also planning to do an opera, a small, a short opera, um, with a p- composer called Jeremy Thurlow, who lives in um, um, Cambridge in England. So there's that. That's on the plan, and um, that's. And what a, would you be doing? Writing? Um, I did like, the libretto. Okay. Mm. Wow. That's yeah. And the idea of the the, the, the idea of it is actually to take um, it's actually the Greek Phaedron myth, oh. and. Um, if I can persuade Jeremy to do this, I mean, I don't want to try and interfere in the music, but I have this idea that there's a kind of running variation on Casta Diva, you know, the, the, the great aria Casta Diva, you know, Casta Diva. You know, that, uh, <laughs> you Maria Callas, Maria Callas oh, yes. is famous for it. Okay. You know? And, uh, um, uh, you could do our musical bits, John. <laughs> <laughs> Not dancing at all, as you can hear from that. But um, I wanted to, you know, because there's a theme. The theme in it is of of desire and 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 and, and you know sexual desire and and longing and and this this chaste withdrawal from the world, which the kind of Hippolytus character that that has taken to heart, as it were. And it's set in modern times. Yeah. It's, um It's a, a jockey, it's a, a, a rider who's, who's been injured and he's come over to his father's house. His father's married this young, uh, younger woman and she falls in love with the guy. And for, for two reasons, one is his kind of um, his own personal spiritual path and also for his loyalty to his father, he, he doesn't want to reciprocate of, you know, so it's a federal story again, but in a, diff- in a kind of modern um, take on that. And with a jockey. With a jockey instead of instead of yeah, um, but Dick got... Francis is pumping his fist in the air now. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure it will fall into that territory, but yeah, I don't know as much about about riding as Dick Francis did because he was a professional um, before he became a writer. Um, yeah, he was a he was a good jockey, um, and also I've got you know I've got these other things that are on the go. I've got a nice collaboration which I've started with um, a, a, an artist called Amy Shelton who lives in um, uh, south in, southwest of England in on Cornwall. Bees. Uh, in Devon, actually. Oh, in Devon. Yeah, in, oh. in Exeter. Oh, and she and I have been working on bees for a while, so we're going to continue that work. Bees? Bees, yeah. The bzz? Bzz, bees, yeah. <laughs> um, she's, she's, she actually is a ceramicist, but um, she, she and I did a little book together a few years ago called Angels and Animals, and it was a series of poems and, 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 and drawings, beautiful drawings, extraordinary drawings. And we always plan to work again together again. And Amy's been doing these works with working with bees, using bees as inspiration, and some of the work she's been making have been make, made with beeswax, for example. It's oh. amazing what you can do to beeswax, you know, and polishing it and and treating it in various ways. So she's been doing those works, and so our plan we've done a book together, a, a small book together. Our plan is to do larger scale works as well and do an exhibition. Um, so there's a whole bunch of you know different things on the drawing board. That's a, that yes, because I think that's four things so far. Yeah, and I've also really? got a project in mind with a photographer called Norman Norman Macbeth who who lives in Edinburgh, and it's called Nichts, which is a series of short stories that's set at night time. And Norman's a great photographer of night, of of you know night and the and the grey times in between you know night and day and and. The, that kind of shadowy area. We're both very interested in shadows. Mm. You know, um, 
something that I've been interested in for a while. Because that's a, a boundary of sorts. It's a boundary, but, but also it's um, you know the kind of wabi sabi tradition in, in Japan. It's I, I touched on my 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 new my memoir. It's something that I got interested in when I was kind of having a, my crazy fits back when I lived in the suburbs. And wabi sabi, one of the, one of the traditions there is is a kind of appreciation of shadows and half light. And we live in a, a you know kind of society where glaring light is so is so ubiquitous you know and um i love shadow and darkness and those things and um and I candle light <laughs> and candles yeah and, and or even just one small lamp in a room and um tanizaki the japanese novelist um who wrote a beautiful book uh, called in praise of shadows in english um and uh, it's about that part of that is is the aesthetic of shadow and of of that kind of half light and simplicity and wabi sabi is a great tradition um very interesting it's perhaps not practiced much in japan i don't know but um it's something that's spiritually very interesting it, it relates a lot to the tea ceremony and to the making of the tea bowls and you know the, um, that prizing things for their for the spontaneity and for the simplicity um and there's not the kind of rustic quality to it without overdoing that i think you so I'm kind of interested in that too. So um, Norman and I have been talking about doing that. Um, it's just a question of us both fitting it in because we're both kind of busy. And yeah, because when you're doing these collaborative projects with yeah. people, is it is it made easier because you can do it via uh, like the computer, like Skype, or or do you actually go? Will you go to Devon, for example, and with the bees and or uh, yeah? How yeah, do, it works. It can work both ways. I mean, sometimes uh, I did a collaboration with a painter called Calaminis, who's a really great Scottish painter, and he. And I would sit down in his studio, and I spend the whole day just just sitting talking to him in the studio, or work, watching him work, or watching the kind of things that go around along around his work. You know, all the things that happen around him when, when he's working. And then we'd sit in a bar for all night and talk about it. And and then I'd go off and do something. He'd go off and do something. We'd come back in and compare notes. Because of where I live, and because I'm busy, and Amy lives down in in, in Devon, we don't get together. Um, we didn't get together for this whole smaller project at all. But we, you know, we exchange. We send things back and forward in the post. We send things back and forward from email and stuff like that. But really, it's it's fine. The most important thing is finding somebody that you're on the right wavelength with, and then you both go and do your your own thing, and you come back together. I find that really interesting. What happens there? It isn't a deliberate controlled effort to collaborate it's finding some you know fellow spirit and then both doing something more or less in parallel and then bringing it together because what you don't want to do is have you know sit down and you know have me write words around someone's images or someone illustrate my words you want to talk about an idea that you have even in almost quite vague terms sometimes and then go away and each of you do your thing and then bring it back together and often then that'll be an interim creation if you like and then from bringing back your the stuff and putting it back together again, maybe you'll go off and do something new, you know? And then does it, and are you thinking in part of that, John, then is there a fusing of it somehow? Yeah. Or are they always mm-hmm. sort of um, these separate things and then you go off and it's it's in pieces? Is like, uh, yeah, because it's yeah, interesting it, it, it how you're It can be a stage thing. I mean, recently I did a book with um, the artist David Faithful and we, we I was on residence um not last year, the year before, um, which isn't quite two years, if you see what I mean, um, uh, on the Isle of Jura. Uh, it's a beautiful island on the west coast of Scotland. 
And um, I was there for a month, and I had the, the distillery house was made available to me so I could sit in <laughs> the distillery house. And, Sounds like and a write. dream. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> luckily, luckily you don't get to access the whiskey because it's, it's not ready yet, you know. Um, but well, there was quite a lot of whiskey but around. But the spirit there. is around you. Is <laughs> wink, wink. And it was lovely because the house is right next to the door to the actual distillery. And my studio, my, the area where I worked, was looking out onto the yard of the distillery. And at night time, which is when I often work, you can hear the people rolling barrels and all those beautiful sounds, gorgeous sounds of people doing real work. Yes. I mean, one of the things I'm also interested in right now is, is the revaluation of real work. You know, work that involves making things, work that involves craftsmanship, although we should find a better word perhaps than craftsmanship. But, uh, you know, uh, that involves that kind of art. And, um, you know, I think it's a theme that's run through a lot of poetry I've written, um, you know, prizing things that uh, involve human skill and ingenuity and stuff that isn't done just for money or for, you know, but actually done for, for the love of doing the work. And you talk to the distillery men and they really love what they do, you know. Yes, and yeah. I think when I was there in Jura, I, t- I spent some time talking to the guys who work uh, in the in gamekeeping because Jura is basically an island that's covered with deer. Oh. And, you know... Um, I don't particularly much like the class structure which overlays it, but uh, you know the, the main industry, if you like, of, of Jura is actually deer stalking, deer hunting, and those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Um, and it's not it's not as democratic, perhaps, as deer hunting is in the U.S. I'm not sure if it, I get the image of it being more democratic here. But, um, <laughs> and wear your bright orange. Sorry. <laughs> and wear your we'll bright, orange. bright orange. <laughs> I don't do it myself, in fact. But I, I mean, I talked to one of the guys who he, he takes the the, 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 the the carcass of the the deer after it's been killed on the moor and stuff, and he, and he butchers it for the local community. You know, supply the local community with venison. Oh. And the craft in that and the beauty of all that. So. Nothing to waste then, even though some people are doing, the stalking might be for sport and for some other edification for people, but the the village, the town is using. Well, the interesting thing, I had a wonderful uh, discussion with him about that because I love, uh, if you're going to kill an animal, you should do the respect of using everything. And, and, And in the old days, they did. But because of regulations that come from the center, from government, from from the European Union, there are things you just now have to waste because you're not allowed to use them in the old-fashioned way. Like what? Well, here's, here's a... I mean, when I drove onto the island, the first thing I saw... Because a little car ferry that gets onto the bottom of the island. And the first thing I saw, I looked off to my left as I got on, off the ferry, and there was this beautiful old deer larder. Now, deer larder is a, a, like a hut, and the walls are louvered, so the wind can blow through the, the house from all directions. All of the walls are louvered all the way around. And inside, they used to hang the deer... Um, you know, f- for preparing the you know the carcass for the meat, and they used to hang them up inside, and and, and you know depending on where the deer ladder was, it would actually you know as a sense kind of season the, the 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 meat of the the deer, and this was right on the tip of the island, right on a little spur out into the uh, out into the into the sea, there, and um, you know you can imagine. How nice that meat would be with the salt, that. Yeah, and the salt wind, and the, and the wind off the heather and stuff. So I thought I must go down and look inside there sometime. So I found out who you know who ran this place and got to speak to the gamekeeper. And he was very kind and let me come down. And I arrived down there and I parked my car at the ferry and then I walked over to where the deer um, larder was. It was about you know half a mile down along the stony beach. It was wonderful. And um, got in, got there, and he said, "Come on in. I'm just going to start work." And I got in and went inside, and inside there was a modern. Uh, coal store and none of the deer were hanging up in the wind because you're not allowed to use a deer larder for the reasons that were built in the first place because 
regulations say you have to keep meat in the cold store and you have to, you know, et cetera, all these regulations. And you know, he said, you know, it's much better to use the old system, but, you know, we're, and we're regulating but it. We're kind of thing. But we're safer, but it's safer, more yeah. tasteless, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and, and it's, a, it's something we've done um, kind of generally is, is, is regulate our, or, or for, for less noble reasons, perhaps, or seemingly noble reasons, for market reasons. We've, 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 uh, excise from our daily lives the kind of most wonderful things about human beings which is their, their skill their craft their sense of craft that you know the passing down of knowledge from one generation to the next all of those things are things that I certainly prize and um, I think it makes us more more humane if we if we have those things and we treasure those things so that if you give somebody something to eat if somebody comes to your house and you say have some of this you can say it was made by these people at this place and and this is the method they used to just make it just down the street even. exactly or or if just it, across or the fields you know yes yeah. across the yeah. field yeah. and then when you're on jury you can do that with everything and jury I, I spent most of my time eating you know local all of those projects was local I brought a little bit of supplies like you know the odd teas that they think I, I drink. <laughs> I had to bring them with me. but And, you know, all the food was local. And, you know, local samphire, which is um, a, a kind of a gr- plant that grows on the, near the sea. It's wonderful, salty kind of, um, you know, green vegetable, but it's beautiful. Um, local fish. And, 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 you know, when David, the artist I work with, well, I think with this anecdote, rambling anecdote started. David came over to stay as you know, he stayed for a few days, and I said, "Oh, we're going to have this tonight." And we're going, and it came from this guy, and I could point that guy out to the bar in the bar room at the hotel, you know, and that kind of thing. It makes a sense of community which is really rich, and the Jura people who are lovely, amazing community on Jura is a very small community, a couple hundred people in the whole island. They're very apprehensive about losing that, and you know. They, they they love their island so much and they want to say to people, come and visit our island. But then the other part of them... But please don't change it. But yeah. Please don't come at all, actually. Yeah. <laughs> they said to me when I was leaving, I said, well, you know, I love my time here so much. I said, well, come back, but don't bring any of you with you. And if you talk about it, <laughs> no, be sure to mention all the insects that we have here and all the little creatures that... Well, not just insects, but creatures. And they're poisonous. No, just kidding. <laughs> well, actually, there's one that I always mention when I talk about Jura, which I have to do it now by duty, is keds. <laughs> they're called keds. They're little black insects that jump out of the bracket onto you and they run about and eat your skin and they're really hard to locate. And, and the gamekeepers... That, that's and you're it. not joking right now. No, they're real. They're you're real. not putting this on. <laughs> and um, the gamekeepers, of course, you know, if you're stalking, sometimes you have to be still for several hours, you know. And there's, uh, one of the gamekeepers said, you know, there's nothing that bothers him. He doesn't mind if somebody shoots him accidentally, but the cads, they drive him crazy. He might be lying there among, among bracket or standing, you know, and he's, he, he can feel these things jumping around. So they said, always mention those to discourage, you know, not very serious visitors. <laughs> and on that note, we'll take a short break. Um, thank you, John Burnside. Um, I feel like you've got a travel travel books up your sleeve next, too. I don't know if that's something. Yeah, I'll something I've been thinking about. Yeah. Right. Okay, yeah, yeah. we're going to take a short break. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers today, John Burnside. Um, we've been talking about his memoir from Grey Wolf Press, A Lie About My Father. We'll be right back. Apology. I don't have the time to 
based on this effort. Don't have what it takes. Stay in one place. But I might have what it takes to make myself home. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, John Burnside. Um, let's see. Well, John, maybe I'd love because you've brought some new poems with you, um, and we, we've talked about how Gray Wolf Press has published your the part one of your memoir, um, A Lie About My Father. Um, could could we talk briefly about um, the the state of because you, you have you have so many novels too i've got the dumb house here this is a, a jonathan cape uh original um and most of your books for the last i don't know like the last seven i think in your f- fiction I, jonathan cape publishes a lot of your books from yeah. from the research mm-hmm. that i've done mm-hmm. um so so what is it are, are there more um Doubleday is publishing some of your other fiction mm-hmm. books. Could you tell us, like, what what can people go out and find easily in the states right now? Because okay. uh, it's some of the things are yeah. still only in the UK, especially the poems, which we'll get to. Yeah, <laughs> I'm talking right. about that. Um, in the US right now, um, Doubleday publish um, have published so far a couple of novels: um, The Devil's Fruit Prince and um, Glister. Okay, Glister. Yeah, yes, that's the, that's the most recent novel that's out in the US, and. Um, uh, Grey Wolf published a lot by my father, and um, that's all that's come out in the U.S. so far. Um, uh, more of my other stuff is available in Europe, throughout Europe, but um, that's all, those are only three books available in the U.S. right now. And sadly, my poetry isn't available in, in the U.S. unless you order it from the U.K. So I haven't, I haven't found a U.S. publisher for my poems yet. So um, not that I've been trying very hard, I have to, be, I have to admit, you know, I haven't been pursuing that because you kind of get into the fiction thing and... Um, agents tend to talk to people about fiction more because you know fiction's got a larger audience and stuff. I started when I started as a writer. I started by writing poetry, and, and poetry is still the thing that I suppose you know deep down inside I I most love. Although I I, I love them all in different ways. It's it's kind of interesting the different things that you do to to do different kinds of work. Um, what what is that? Um, can well, you, is, are you able to articulate? What, what I think you, the best way of looking at articulating it is, is to actually talk about the method, I suppose, um, of, of how I work. And, and, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for everybody, but um, I remember when I started writing, I, I used to work in the computer industry, and um, I had written what I called poetry at the time when I was a student. Actually, to be quite frank, it was a completely venial exercise. I used to write poems and give them to girls because I figured... You know, either if you want to meet girls, you can either be good-looking or athletic or 
If you were a poet, that would be good. (laughs) Poet in a band or in a band. band. Like that kind of the same category. That's that's the one I also missed out on. So I missed out on the others except, uh, and I used to write poems. And, you know, I gave them to girls and said, you know, here's my new poem. What do you think? But I mean, that wasn't a very serious way of approaching poetry. Um, It wasn't a very good way of approaching girls, (laughs) as it turned out. But... uh, um, but I'm going to work that one out. It's too late now. I'm married. But, uh, <laughs> this this program could be ours. We could go into. <laughs> there's so many ways to go here. <laughs> but, but I I started writing poetry when I was working in the computer industry. I I, I needed I needed something, and my, my my soul, if you like, was saying I needed something you know, to to work on. And um, I started. Uh, you know, I love poetry, and I read a lot of poetry, and I started writing. And I used to get a piece of paper and sit down and I'd have ideas and sit down to write, and it was killing it. Just sitting down with my put the pen in my hand and the idea in my head and I was destroying the idea by trying to write. So I, I remember reading about Mandelstam, the Russian poet, and of course Dante did this and lots of other poets in the old time did it. Um, well, they didn't write, they walked. They went out walking and they composed in their heads, you know, or on the lips. Uh, Mandelstam calls it composing on the lips. So I thought, okay, well, I'd rather do that anyway. So if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But I remember I'd go out, I used to do a lot of walking anyway. Um, you know, hill walking in Scotland and places. And I'd go walking and, um, you know, I, I'd, ideas would come and I'd just let them work their own way through, kind of percolate, if you like. And I figured if I didn't have a pen, I didn't have a pencil or a, with me, and I figured if there were whatever came was memorable enough, well, at the end of the day, when I got back to civilization, as it were, and I, I could still write it down, it must be memorable enough to cut to last through the day. And that's how it, the kind of my earliest po- poems came into being. And they were usually, by definition, short, shortish poems. You know, they were quite short and quite tight. And then I started writing longer poems. And what happened then was I got kind of, I got really into the idea of, of you know, I had, I had ideas I wanted to open out and, I was particularly influenced by American poetry, as it happens, because American poetry is more expansive and more, I think, open, democratic, actually, in a, in a genuine way. And I loved American poetry, and I and I wanted to do that. And I, and I thought, well, my composition method doesn't work for that. Um, and what I was finding then was I was getting ideas for longer things, and I was composing them piecewise. And the first poem I did like that, it was like a, it was only three pages long or something, you know, the, um, and it came in pieces, and I thought, oh, how am I going to organize this? And it organized itself. And I you think, oh, one of the things, I mean, one of the things any artist has to do is to trust what comes from, as it were, below. And organization of the work also can come from, also comes from there. The subconscious? Yeah, I, I was or, using the word from below, yes, trying to yes, avoid mysterious. using the subconscious. <laughs> okay, okay. Because well, oh, I'm sorry. For, me, for, my, for me, for my generation, subconscious and things smacks of a certain simplistic, you know, kind of Freudian thing. Oh, but, okay. But um, somebody talks about um, the back of the mind. Mm. Grand Marcus is a good thing about that, about this. I think it's because of the, the second mind. Anyway, it's the idea that, you know, there it isn't subconscious. I mean, that's, that implies a kind of clear line between one thing and another. It's a kind of, it's a kind of gray shade area where things move up that and down. That shadow again. Yeah, shadowy area. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of biologists say that interesting things in biology are, are on the borderlines. You know, life is interesting. Nature is interesting at borderlines. I think that's true of, you know, in geography as well. And, those kind of, and my, the young woman in my new novel is actually um, uh, becomes a map maker at the end of the book. And the reason she loves maps so much is she's, she's looking for, she's trying to define things, you know, but she's, she's trying to define things and leave the mystery in it. 
at the same time, you know. That sounds like something that you would say maybe is your mission in some yeah, ways, I think too. Yeah, I think that's what, what the poetry certainly is, is about, is trying to find the right words to try and convey an experience without, you know, kind of estranging the experience or killing it or making it too controlling it too much yeah, or too you know? simplistic in some ways yeah that, leaving something open yeah know? and conveying i hope the kind of organic quality i i'm always attributing this to frost but i don't know where i read it frost is supposed to have said that the, the job of the poet is not to stand in the way of the poem you know and i think i certainly took that to heart whether it was frost who said it or not i took it to heart because i think one's own ego wants to shape things, wants to control things, wants to put across what they want, you know, what the ego wants to say. And not standing in the way of the poem brings something much more organic and, and richer and more spontaneous and subtle uh, there, you know. And in Britain right now, I find a lot of poets are, are, are really crafting, overcrafting in my view, crafting their poetry to show, hey, look what I can do. You know, look, I can make this very nicely crafted poem. Um, which I, I I like it if it if it happens you know with that sense of spontaneity to it, but too often it feels like it's 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 forced. Sometimes in 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 poetry you get people who are just overcome by the desire to say something about something. I mean, and and I'm as susceptible as anybody to that. I mean, you know, I, I care I have cared about the environment for a long long time, and I've written poems all the way through my poetic career, which is now apparently 20 years. I didn't really realize that. I've been publishing poetry for 20 years, um, longer than that, actually. I've, I've always written those poems, which are, you know, saying, you know, hands off this, or, or, or isn't, isn't this beautiful, why don't you leave it alone? And then thrown away, because, oh, uh, you know, I, I don't want to write, I mean, I, I do other things for polemic. I write essays, or I take part in, you know, uh, events or demonstrations or whatever. But I think a poem that just says, you know, oh, war is bad or uh, save the planet or what, you know, those kind of things. That's not... They don't really work as art and they don't really work as polemic. I think if you want to do the polemic, I think you should, but you should go all out there and, 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 and put your blood on the page, you know. And so in that, you would say more essays then. Well, that's, why, that's, that's how, how I That's how you do it. Do it. I, yeah. mean, I do know poets who, who, who do make you think about those issues through a poem, but... But not There's an art to that, that that I can't that I don't do anyway. Because it's not it's not as if it's it's the straight talking in the poem. It's something yeah. that's coming round it's to it in a way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're kind of you're not so much um, showing somebody something. You're you're pointing the direction that they might go to find that something. Then some know? sort of understanding about it. Yeah. That they can maybe connect to. And also reminding people of of of. I mean, I think uh, I hope somebody who read, reads poems of mine or hears poems of mine is reminded of things that. They know, we all know it, but our society, or our, our culture, has dedicated, I mean, our mainstream culture has dedicated itself to suppressing um, celebration of life and death, you know, for example, celebration of light and shadow, celebration of um, love and desire and sexuality, but also recognizing the darkness and those things, uh, and, and thinking that those are not bad things, but they're part of the natural process. Celebration of all of the cycles of nature, not just parts of it that we want to pick and choose, you know. And the, the culture that we're in, the, uh, as I say, the mainstream of that culture, wants us to think, you know, clean and pretty and, you know, and pure and, and puritan and those things. And not relish, you know, um, the darker. Uh, they call it the darker. I mean, why is it darker? But, you know, the, the other sides of the things that they find less palatable, uh, that are less conducive to selling stuff which i think is the you know the real uh, kind of logic underneath all 
And so, so there's, you want to make sure that there's a place in your poems for this celebration yeah. and and yeah. does that extend also to um because reading um starting off reading the dumb house um <laughs> which isn't out in the united states for very good reasons <laughs> wait why is that no that's not not at all the case well hold on let's take a short break and sure. then we'll come right back john you, you've got living writers i'm t hetzel today on the program john burnside we'll be back <laughs> If you're just joining us, you've got John Burnside here in the studio on Living Writers. Um, so, so John, we were talking about the Dumb House, mm. and you made um, you sort of uh, quipped there. Well, there's very good reasons. I mean, it's it's a, it's, it's extremely dark, and mm. uh, right right off the bat, um, mm. first page in, um, we've got the killing of the twins. Mm. Uh, uh, so, so this is something, but it's. But but the mind and the the speaker of this is is very compelling and and it's it's a beautiful language uh-huh. yeah. at least you know um, as far as I've I've gotten in the mm. dumb house so I'm I'm sure it's to the very last page it as well. It gets worse. It gets worse all the way. <laughs> but what, um, so they have talk. Can you talk? Is this an example of the darkness in the fiction of how yeah, it's working? Yeah, that's the darkest fiction I've made, I suppose. Um, it was the first novel I'd, I wrote. I've been writing poetry for for several years, and I'd, I'd been working in the computer industry. And poetry was, you know, uh, I wasn't I wasn't really a writer in one sense. I was a a, a poet, but I was somebody who had, who, whose life was the day job, and poems were fitted into whatever I could. And I said to my editor, "I want to write a novel," and he said, "Oh, okay. Um, we'll give you some money. Go and write a novel." And I gave my boss the, my com- company where I worked. I gave, I went and gave him my car key, and I said, "I'm leaving." Because um, you know, in the computer industry, when you leave, you leave right that day. I'm leaving, and he looked at me. You know, I was like a I don't know, late thirties guy, 
And he looked at me and said, oh, I suppose you're going to go off and write a novel or something. And I said, exactly. That's exactly what I'm going to do. And he kind of said, oh, you'll be back. Six months. I'll give you six months. You'll be back. You know. So, um, Well, meaning that he's also, well, nice. He's welcoming. He'd be willing to take you back. So he, you'd well, done... they needed me at the time. Oh. I mean, you know, there was a shortage of people who had certain skills and stuff. And so they, need, they needed me in the company. Um, in fact, they asked me to do consultancy while I was writing my novel. Um, and but, you said no, though. No, I, I did a little bit of consultancy just to tide me over because I needed oh, I money. See. but okay. um, cause I was moving house and various things were going on but um, I you know I didn't go back uh, I wrote the novel but when I gave my editor the first uh, kind of treatment if you like of this novel the kind of synopsis it was all about language acquisition it was all about the things that mm-hmm. uh, that are by you know they're kind of by the way and, and the plot wasn't there at all it was I just wanted to write a book which basically was an excuse to write about the things that I really love which was the idea of the soul language acquisition and this beautiful old story from um, an old Persian poem about the great um, the, um, the Mughal emperor Akbar which great um, the great um, who apparently the story is told that he you know the, and, and the, the, he was Muslim and, and the tradition um, is that you know m- the Muslim tradition would seem to put the soul closer to intellect than say other um, religious. Um, so, for example, Averroes, that's called the Averroes heresy in, in, in Christianity, that you link the the soul to the intellect, you know. And, um, you know, language, of course, is the, the expression of the soul. And the idea was, that the argument was uh, between Akbar and his counselors was some of the counselors said, language is an expression of the soul, so anything that's human will have language, no matter what the conditions and circumstances they're raised in. You know, because it's an expression of the, the, the divine spark in us, that kind of intellect soul, if you like. The other the other counselors said, no, language is learned. You know, the soul is much darker and muddier and, and more complex and mysterious than, than just simply intellect. And, um, and of course, Akbar was, was great because he managed to, to I mean, he was, he was an emperor, so he wasn't that great. But, you know, he managed to keep... These two, this huge empire, which included a vast population of Muslim people and, and Hindu people, um, at more or less at peace, which is quite an achievement in itself, and included other religious beliefs as well. And Akbar would say he would always, um, you know, mediate between his, the various factions. And he apparently said, "Okay, well, all we can do is test of the, the hypothesis." So he was an early scientist as well. He built this palace outside the city. And to the palace, this is where he wasn't so great, he just rounded a whole bunch of newborn children, had them taken to the palace, and then they were raised there by, by mutes. dumb, by mutes, yeah. Um, and God knows how they became mute. Again, you know, if you're of all power, you don't know. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Wait, and it's, this is based on historical fact, this, Nobody this knows Persian for sure. poem? Nobody or? knows for no. sure. There may have been a drama of it, but it's, it's actually from a kind of almost like fairy story. I see, okay. uh, it's a kind of praise um, for Akbar. Um, but he built the, this place, and the children were raised, and they didn't speak. And what interested me about that story was the moment when the news was delivered, when it was finally agreed that, okay, they haven't learned language. There's an old hypothesis that says that if a child doesn't speak grammatical speech by the age of five, it probably won't develop. It might be able to, to speak by pointing at things, as it were, by using language as a pointer, the way, you know, but it can't if it can't create grammatical language by five that 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 atrophies that ability atrophies so you know the, the, after a few years they pretty much figured out these children were not learning to speak and I thought what about those counselors who believed in this that that, that, that speech was in that manif- was 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 the the soul was the soul 
what had they condemned those children to? You know, to a life without souls, but nevertheless a continued life. And that was interesting to me. So these were all in, these were all like, it was almost like a book of essays, the idea. And then my editor said to me, I said to him, look, this is what I'm going to do. He said, well, there's not much plot, is there? And I had this other kind of vague story that I had in mind about trying to write about um, someone who was psychopathic, I suppose you'd say, who was a kind of pseudoscientist. Because I, I was very concerned about, I don't know if it was happening here, but probably, um, this sense that there were these people around you were almost psychotically saying um, science was the answer to everything. A certain kind of science was when it was very objective and it was, you know, QED type of science, I call it. And it, it didn't allow for any kind of mystery. It didn't allow for any gray shade. It was like something's either true or false. It was going in the face of everything I was learning as, a, as a, I'd been learning as a computer person, which to do with fuzziness and those kinds of ideas. It was all very, you know, kind of reductionist. And I wanted to say there was something psychotic about that. It was actually a, a reductionism was actually a manifestation of mental illness. You know? And so I had this other character who was like that. I didn't know where to put him. And he invaded the, the, the novel and became this character who was the center of the novel. And of course, then when you create a character, you have to give them carte blanche to do what they want to do. And when he came across this set of plots and stories, he had to repeat the experiment, of course, and he takes it to, to horrible conclusions. And, of course, I wrote the book. And when you get into a project, you don't stand back and look at it and say, oh, my God. <laughs> you just write. You, you follow it. And then, of course, I delivered it. And it became a kind of cult book in Britain. It was sold in record shops and stuff because you know, people were into it. And then... You know, there was a big case in Belgium about someone who abducted, abducted children. And in my book, the two small children, are not, they're not abducted, actually, but he abducts a woman to have the children with, as it were. So my editor said, well, you know, we're going to have to find it tough selling this in other countries. <laughs> um, we're going to find it tough uh, selling this in other countries. And, in fact, the only country it's come out so far in... in um, oh, it came out in Holland and, and France. But, oh. You know, but I like it still as a book, but I can see that there's something about it that's troubling to an American sensibility, I think. It's it's very, very dark. and But it's not dark in the way that a lot of books that, that are successful here are dark. I mean, it's not like a Thomas Harris dark, you know. If you see what I mean, it's 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 much... Well, this is, it's more of the psych- psychologically... Um, dark like yeah. it's going but talking about i don't but it's interesting so you're saying that your editor actually did did pitch it to someone here or did they just say because of the case i think they just based, well my editor doesn't do that but my agent um my agent says that we, we should uh, try and sell it other places yes but I, of course the thing is what happens is I'm, I'm i do work a lot and i i can't produce a lot of stuff so you're moving They're forward, kind of moving forward and, and to me kind of, i don't tend to look back and say well why don't we sell this or why don't we get people interested in that I just kind of do what I'm doing and leave the marketing side to them, as it were. And we tend to look at what I'm kind of interested in now. That makes a lot of sense. But Mm. for some reason, I forget, I I thought that I had seen blurbs by, like, Stephen King and... Um, Not Stephen King, no. No? I dream things sometimes, uh, uh, I guess. The Devil's (laughs) Footprints had some really nice, very kind and generous um, comments from really great writers who, who, you know... But not not the, not the dumb house. Um, it got a great review in the New York Times, um, but you know it didn't make that much difference. 
Uh, yeah, it's a great. Well, well, it's so interesting to hear about then these life because you because in a way you need to keep moving forward as an as a, a writer as an artist. But if you've got these the if the business part, if someone can be looking out for that, yeah. it seems important so that it does have a life of its own. And it, it made its way to the Ann Arbor Library. Oh, so it's go. got a life <laughs> in some ways, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, and I think people who want I mean, it was distributed here, I think, but people who are interested in the subject matter might seek it out. But I think what I tend to do is I do my job and I, you know, I'm trying to learn how to do different kinds of writing and do it as well as I can. And, you know, I have a really good agent. And um, good editors, and uh, I'll let them do their jobs, you know. And they, they, they do. You know, I, I don't want to sit around and argue with them, but what well, they know, I don't know it. They do, and um, you know, I, I, I have my thing. They, they have theirs, and it works. It works and nicely, and, and it feeds both ways, you know. I mean, you know, I, I get a lot from the conversations I have with people like editors and and agents and stuff. It's really. I mean, I, I I hate to be the kind of one writer who comes in and says, you know, I like my agent and I like my editor. And my editor doesn't make my life miserable. And you know, I've met writers who say, well, well let's. But, but what? Excuse me. <coughs> oh, bless you. But what we need to find then is a place like um, uh, an American distributor for your poems. Could could yeah, publisher. Or publisher. Well, I mean, I, yeah. I'm not, I haven't rushed into that, uh, and I think um, yeah, distributor makes it sound like you're yeah. throwing it into a canister and just popping them out into the sky. <laughs> and also, my, my British books do get distributed here, I think, to some extent. But um, you know, I think the, for me, what's really important in terms of a, a, a publishing poems is, is is the relationship you have with an editor. Um, I think. An editor can look at a book and say that they love the book, and a lot of people still work on that basis. An editor can also look at a book, I mean a fiction book, say, or a non-fiction book, a prose book, and they can look at that and they can say, well, you know, I, I kind of like this, and um, I can work with this, and, and uh, you know, I imagine that's how they, they do work, that they can see a niche for that. But to, to, for someone to publish poetry, they have to be completely and utterly into the poetry, you know? I think as a poet, you can talk to someone... You can sense even the smallest reservation, you know, about about po- about your poetry. So I would want to have with, to work with a editor who, who the editor I could work with would have to have that kind of you'd have to have that rapport with them, which is, you know, uh, I have a good rapport with my editors in terms of the fiction, and I think I certainly believe uh, um, in terms of fiction that people are publishing my fiction in various places, um, especially in, um, in the states. And Antilles is a fantastic editor. Um, People who believe um, in 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 the work, because for example, in the U.S., it's a big big marketplace. You don't you probably don't need anybody coming from outside and selling novels around here because you've got plenty of great novelists already. You always need good stories. Yeah, good but writing. you've got so many great storytellers. I mean, you know, all kinds and great poets as well. I mean, it's an incredibly rich uh, literary scene in the states. I mean, I I just come here and I you know want to come home with five boxes of books. You know, luckily we we have we can ship them in more easily than we used to. But when I worked in the computer industry, I used to come over to do some work, and the first thing I did as soon as I finished my first day of work, I would just get in car, go down to one of the little independent bookshops and um, just sit around and, and just read um, poetry, mostly in those days, and just you know, fill boxes and ship them home because we didn't have Amazon and stuff when I first started coming over. And we didn't, and, you know, UK bookshops were about as friendly as, you know, public toilet uh, you'd go in you'd ask for what you wanted then you'd leave you know um, whereas you know you came into a US bookshop and you sat down and you got a pile of books and you read them and you dipped and you 
tasted and you thought, well, I'm, I'm not sure about this one. I'll come back and check it again. And you know, you buy these five and you know, off you go. And you, you spend the whole evening there and you meet people in bookshops and start talking to them about books that you loved and all of those things. We didn't have that. Which is very strange. And hopefully it won't disappear completely from our yeah. our landscape. Well, I, I hope that you, you you can hold faith with what independent bookshops are left, you know, but um and, and brings back some of the ones you've lost. I mean, I had a whole it was one period of about six months and I heard I mean, about Shaman Drum and um bookshops I used to go to in, in, in California who are all disappearing. And uh I, you know, I, 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 just, I felt grief, to be honest, because yes. the loss of those places are not just places for a solitary person to come in and, and, and taste books. It's, about, it's a meeting place. It's, it's sometimes even it's a silent meeting place. You know that all, everybody around, sitting around you or standing at the, the, the shelves there is like somebody who's, on, you know, who's got something in common with you. They might be looking at books on you know, psychogeography or political theory or whatever, and I'm looking at poetry, but you're all there because you love thought you love books and you love that, that kind of space you don't feel that the same way in a big one of these big bookstores you know but anyway ah uh, it's sad it's sad, it is sad. Start crying a minute. exactly and we've lost a lot of ours too in the uk we've lost a lot of our independence mm. you know been taken over by you know the big the big chains as well so what can we do i mean i think that's something to think about like what can we do to it goes save along them with that thing that i was saying before about community. craft Oh, yes, craft. You know, um, food, for example. I, I, what I love, for example, going from the UK to... Or I used to always love, and it's changing in the UK, but there used to be a, a, a complete contrast going across the water to France. And you'd go into a shop in France and you'd buy food there. And again, going back to that idea, you know, they could tell you where, they, where it came from and how it was made and stuff. Now it's happening a little bit more in the UK. Um, and of course, the organic movement's helped a lot with that as well, although some of our organic um, standards are a bit kind of fuzzy so that we can let almost anybody in but you know there is that sense of that if you appreciate the food appreciate the people who made it appreciate how it's created and appreciate um that, that books shouldn't be sold as like you <laughs> how many phones have you got <laughs> I, know. I know this is why it's great to have an engineer <laughs> Oh, it won't even turn off. I mean, I keep trying to turn it off. The phone Um, doesn't turn off. All right, it's true. Sorry, everybody. It's it's not live radio, but it sure (laughs) feels like it. (laughs) Um, But sorry for interrupting your thought. I don't want to buy books in the supermarket. But the artifact of the the food or the book, and and I think what you were saying is it is something that makes us more human because we can see Mm. the parts of others that are in the, the... Right. It's well, the not thing about an independent so bookshop is there's diversity built in. If you if you do go down the kind of supermarket style shopping, what happens is diversity gets taken out. You know, it's like with food. Uh, you get seventeen different types of something, which is actually all the same. They're all mm. produced in a factory somewhere. Sometimes they're produced by the same people, but different labels on it. You know, so you go into a, a store, like a big store, and it seems to give you huge choice. So illusion of choice. An illusion of choice, yeah. But um, if, you, if you go into a supermarket sometime and, and get the manager or someone and, and, and show them a, a section, and I've done this, show them a, it's really annoying, it's a section <laughs> of it and say, okay, tell me how this is different from that. And why don't you have this, you know? But you have this, 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 and this, which are all the same as far as I can see. Tell me how it's different. 
You know, it's the soap powder uh, approach to product, which, you know, everybody knew in the old days that soap powders, you used to have 20 different brands of soap powder, but there are only really three companies that made them. So they're basically they're all the same thing with different colorings or smells added in. <laughs> in the end, it was just detergent, you know, and that's what's happened to food. Well, food shouldn't be detergent. Food is, you know, food is much more <laughs> part of who we are than that, you know. Right. And everything that happens, it's all happening together. People are saying, oh, I'm tired of buying books in something like a supermarket. I'm tired of buying food in a supermarket. I want to buy it in a market. So the farmer's market movement, those kinds of things that are happening, those have made a a big difference. But we have to keep on doing those and and broadening that out so we get diversity so I can say, I I want to buy eggs from this farm. I want to, you know, I like that farm. I like the way that guy feeds his chickens or whatever. I want to buy, you know, spinach from here. Can we hear a poem sure. too, John? Because it would be wonderful to yeah. to hear hear a couple. This is, and I, I feel like we could. Um, May, well, maybe we will. Maybe we'll <laughs> Skype. We'll get you back on Skype I, well, yeah, or so. We'll, we can yeah, we'll figure that one out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I brought some poems in. I don't. Know if, um, this is a poem that I, I wrote. I have to change my glasses now. Uh, this is a poem I wrote quite recently. It was last, just at the end of last year, I guess. Um, this is I've been writing a lot about love, romance, those kinds of things, and thinking about you know the idea. In my last book, The Hunter in the Forest, I had a strand which goes through, which is to do with hunting, and questing, and and searching, and part of that was searching for you know romantic love, the the, the implicit. Uh, hunt in romantic love, the search for the right person, you know, the the one other person, the kind of platonic idea of that one half that meets your half and becomes makes you a whole. And I've always been a bit skeptical about that. And I guess it's a, you know I'm not really a standard poet in, in terms of love because I don't really believe in some of the, the stuff that we're supposed to believe in poets. You know, supposed to die for love and stuff. I'd rather live for several different loves, as it were. But this is a, this is that the idea of the you know that idea of fairy tale ending. You meet the right person, and we all live happily ever after. So that's that cliche. And you know, I I'm, I'm very happy in my life, and um, I'm married, and I've got lovely kids, and you know, um, but it ain't it ain't no fairy tale ending. You know, there's there's you know, kids to look after and things to worry about and those things. But I was trying to create a kind of hypothesis of uh, explaining explaining the poem is going to take ten times as long as reading the poem. <laughs> Maybe I should just read the thing, actually. I'll just read, I'll just read it because I'm, I'm explaining it to death here. And so it's called On the Fairy Tale Ending. Begin with the fend for yourself of all the loves you learned about in storybooks. Fish scale and fox print graven on the hand forever and a tiny hook and eye, and fastened in the sweet meat of a heart you thought would never grieve or come undone. May, and already it's autumn, broken gold and crimson in the medieval beech woods, where our shadows come and go, no darker than the figures in the book of changes, till they're hexed and singled out for something chill and slender in this world, more slight of hand, than sorrow or safekeeping. Oh, thank you, John. So, yeah. That was lovely. I could could you I and because that we've had such a a great chat, would you mind reading another poem? Because sure. I felt um, I just got carried away enjoying the conversation. <laughs> yeah. well, but I'd love to get you another have to stop poem. Me. Actually, you have to physically intervene to stop me from talking. You may guess that <laughs> Our next conversation, I'll be ready. <laughs> Big club. Just sit there with a baseball bat and say. <laughs> or a little water gun. <laughs> no. Yeah, no. Water gun probably is not effective enough. <laughs> really? Okay, that's true because we're getting parched from chatting. <laughs> 
This is actually um, this is a very new poem, and um, this is a. I like the idea of the thought experiment. I kind of thought of poems, you know, the thought experiment, like you know, where if you're a theoretical physicist, you can't do the experiment. You have to do it in your head, as it were, as a imagine. So a thought experiment is actually an exercise of the imagination, um, with some givens to start with. You know, um, the most famous thought experiment, probably in, in recent history, anyway, is, is Einstein's, um, you know, theory of rel- relativity. relativity. Yes. And I thought. This poem is almost kind of defining something, which was what I do all the time, which is basically it's called it's called the, the soul as thought experiment. And I think that's what I do is I kind of spend my time having doing thought experiments about what the nature of the soul is. You know? So that's what's called the soul as thought experiment. Some days it's enough to stand your ground. Wind on the road and that coal oil and mackerel sheen on everything you see. The wet lilandii turned in the rain like the fur-lined gaps in children's books. The blood eyes in the wall, no longer what you feared, but sweet as love and feral, like the soul you disallow to call this home. It's winter now, and late in the afternoon, but though it's a long shot, You still believe someone will call from far out in the hills, the moonlight falling sidewise through a casement as she speaks of history and colour, Celadon and Murray, and those days of ironwood or ginkgo where you cannot help but think of kinship at the point where snow begins on some black road you thought was yours alone, made bright and universal while you listen. Thank you, John. Oh, that's that's lovely. I, it's it's interesting because on I was I was listening closely um, because of the poems that I was reading online of yours uh-huh. um, that were that were really beautiful and it's wonderful because there's one I wanted to mention poetryarchive.org so folks could go and look and and hear hear you read and and see the poems as well um, three three poems the good neighbor animals. Um, Henny, back to pass. He's going to roll out to his right. Throwing in the end zone for Arrington. Caught. Touchdown, Michigan. Takes the snap. Looking to throw the near side. Now he's going to go far. Over the middle. He's got a man. Caught. Touchdown, Michigan. Adrian Arrington wide open in the back of the end zone. Over the middle. And Michigan marches right down the field. No problem. They have the lead again. It's 37-35. to 35. Four wide receivers. T-bone and shotgun. Moore lined up to his right. He's going to throw for it. Pressure coming. He's rolling to his left. Still looking, still looking. He's going, he's throwing down. He throws up a prayer. He's got a man, and it is incomplete. Michigan's going to win 